living with confidence in a chaotic world. I wanted to put a capstone on that as we talk from Psalm 11 on this subject. If the foundations be destroyed. Let's go back in history for a little lesson, shall we? In 1889, Johnstown, Pennsylvania was bustling with industry, prosperity, and growth. Johnstown was home to 30,000 people, many of whom worked in the steel mill, which belched plumes of smoke night and day. For its time, Johnstown was a classic example of the Gilded Age, a class of modern industry and a backdrop of unspoiled countryside. Now, despite its bright future, Johnstown actually sat in the path of an impending disaster. Fourteen miles from the town was the Stony Fork Dam. Now, at the time, it was the largest earthen dam in the United States, and it created the largest man-made lake of the time, Lake Conemaugh. Because of its idyllic landscape, a group of business tycoons, including Andrew Carnegie, bought the lake and the dam and turned it into their own private resort. They called it the Stony Fork hunting and fishing club. But over the time, the dam was neglected. It fell into disrepair. A few years prior to 1889, an engineer actually inspected the structural integrity and was shocked to discover that it had leaks and cracks that could easily give way if the dam was under adverse conditions. The engineer actually went to the wealthy owners and told them that the foundation was in trouble. But he was ignored like the boy who cried wolf. And so then it happened on May the 31st, 1889. After several days of torrential rainfall, the dam began to break. By the time officials noted the gushing water spilling from the dam, it was too late. A telegram was sent to the Johnstown newspaper warning people to evacuate, but the news never got out. Instead, 16 million tons of water came rushing down the valley towards Johnstown like a tsunami. Here was the result as you see these pictures of devastation. The entire town was destroyed and it is estimated that over 2,200 people perished in the disaster. One survivor of the event wrote this, quote, it was like the day of judgment only seen pictured in the Bible. Pandemonium had broken loose, screams, cries, and people were running helpless. It was a raging torrent of houses, trees, boulders, logs, and rail cars coming down like an avalanche. It's amazing to think that moving water has the power to pick up a house or a rail car and move it. The Johnstown flood still today ranks as one of the deadliest disasters in U.S. history. And the reason why I begin with this story is because it is a metaphor for our national peril. Much like the citizens of Johnstown, there are many who observe that the foundations that have long preserved this country from a flood of evil are beginning to crack. Like Johnstown, our fates appear to be in the hands of a few elites who either don't care or are doing this on purpose. And I tend to lean toward the latter. Now, this is the same pathos that vexed David as he penned the opening lines of 
Psalm 11, and there in verse 3, he asks that very timely question. He says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Isn't that the question we're all asking ourselves in 2022? Yet these words written some 3,000 years ago, I believe, capture the angst and the fear that many in our country feel as they notice things falling apart. Whether you're talking morally or culturally, politically or economically, the foundations are crumbling everywhere around us. An NBC News survey published at the end of January of this year revealed this. 72% of Americans think that the U.S. is moving in the wrong direction. In other words, what do we do? The foundations are being destroyed. These are chaotic times. Vance Havner, the great southern preacher from a generation ago, he kind of halfway joked, but he said this, quote, civilization today reminds me of an ape with a blowtorch playing in a room full of dynamite. The monkeys are operating the zoo and the inmates are taking over the asylum. That's the way so many feel today. That was said in the 1960s and if it applied then, how much more does it apply today? Now in today's message, we're going to meditate on the wisdom of Psalm 11. And we're going to understand that in these chaotic times, we have two choices to make. We can respond to the chaos with fear or with faith. And so as we begin this passage today, I want you to see the fear we must confront. The fear that we must confront. Let's read these first three verses, Psalm chapter 11, together. The superscription says, To the choir master of David, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. And if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is the fear we must confront. Now, David is told to be the author of this psalm there in the superscription. And it is believed that he wrote this psalm in a time in his life when the ground beneath his feet was moving. In fact, many scholars believe that this psalm corresponds to a decade of danger in David's life when he was living as a constant fugitive, running as he was ducking and dodging from the madman Saul. Now if you read between the lines here, we get the idea that in these first verses that David is kind of processing through some of the advice that his counselors were giving him as he faced a bleak situation. In fact, that what they appear to be saying to David is something like this. Look, David, you're in way over your head. The foundations are coming apart. There's nowhere you can go. You might as well run and take refuge in a mountain cave somewhere because there's no hope for you, David. And yet, as we study this passage, notice that word in verse 3, foundations. It's very important understanding the meaning of the text here. It comes from the Hebrew word that means the settled order of things. It refers, that word foundation, to the bedrock of stable society, basic morality, law and order, government and justice. John Phillips, a great commentator in the Scriptures, 
wrote about Psalm 11 this way. He said, quote, Law and order, truth, justice, morality, decency, integrity, these are the foundations being destroyed in Western society today. Humanist and libertarian views prevail in our schools, our courts, our governments, and our media. The family and marriage are under siege. A determined attack is being mounted against everything good, moral, and Christian in our society. He said the foundations are being destroyed to make room for the coming reign of the man of sin. And you'll understand that is one of many titles given to the Antichrist in the Scriptures. But notice this. Despite the grim outlook that David faced the forecast of demise in his future. David says defiantly in verse 1, notice, he says, In the Lord I take refuge. He was turning to God in this time of uncertainty. He rejected the temptation to give in to fear. By the way, you know that fear is faith turned inside out. And as we consider our times this morning, I want to eliminate a couple of fear-based options that may be in front of us today as we think about if the foundations be destroyed. Let me notice for you a couple of options that we dare not choose. And I think this psalm rules them out. The first one is this. We must not flee. We must not flee. Look at what he says at the end of verse 1. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to the mountain? The pressure is being turned up in David's life. And the first temptation that he faced was to run away, to flee. And oftentimes as we've looked at our country, you've heard people prognosticate about the doom and gloom in our future. And you know what I've come to realize? That if America goes down, where's the rest of the world going to run to? America has always been the the landing pad or the place of refuge or rescue in this world for the tired, the poor, the, the huddled masses yearning to be free. Now we aren't facing a barrage of, of swords and spears, but we are facing something today called cancel culture whose main tactic is to try and do this, to get you and I into retreat. We live in a culture so toxic and so antichrist today that they want to bully you, child of God, into running away from your faith, running away from your church, and leaving the scene. Now we hear that term all the time, cancel culture. What is it? Well, I'm going to give you a definition this morning. This is mine. It is the act of vilifying, ostracizing, and punishing a group or individuals who do not ascribe to the culture's unwritten rules of political correctness, morality, or equality. This is the very opposite, the ideals of liberty, free speech, and all of the ideals that we hold dear today. In other words, what cancel culture is, it's a soft form of persecution. That's what it is. Political correctness on steroids. By the way, the cancel culture's rules are toxic, hypocritical, They change often, and it usually ends up being a competition of who can prove they're the most victimized or the most oppressed or woke group out there. That's why it constantly changes. And pretty soon the the group that's virtue signaling and showing its worth to the culture, the the group that, that it's fled, pretty much they'll be cannibalized soon by another group who comes along who's even more woke and more radical. 
Now, how did we get here? Well, it began with the gay agenda. Those who didn't support the 2015 Supreme Court ruling legalizing same-sex marriage, all of those folks labeled homophobes. Then in 2016, if you didn't vote a certain way, you were called a deplorable. In 2020, if you weren't marching with BLM, you were labeled a racist. In 2021, if you didn't get a vaccine, you were all of a sudden a domestic terrorist. And now today, if you misgender somebody, God help, if we don't use the right pronoun, you're committing a hate crime. That's where we are. That's called cancel culture. Where it moves from one subject to another. And if you aren't on board with the cultural narrative, you are vilified, you are demonized, you are labeled, and you are rejected and canceled. They don't even want to sit at a table and talk to you. They don't want to hear the other side of the story. They just persecute. So if you don't assimilate and celebrate what the culture says is virtuous, then you are canceled. How's that for diversity? equity, and inclusion. <laughs> Last year, let me give you an example. Last year, Decision Magazine ran the story about Lacey Smith. She was a stewardess for Alaska Airlines for eight years. And she was terminated for simply asking a question about the airline's new policy. Here's a little excerpt from the article. According to that article, Alaska Airlines announced its support for the Equality Act on an internal employee message board and encouraged its employees to comment about it. Now, we know that the current administration has backed the Equality Act. It's a cornerstone of one of their social agendas. And the Equality Act would mandate businesses to promote LBGT issues like forcing women and girls to share bathrooms and locker rooms with men who identify as women. How about no? I'm not going along with that. Lacey Smith, who was a committed Christian, responded on the company message board in the form of a question. All she did was ask a question. As a company, do you think it's possible to regulate morality? The next day she was fired. In an interview, Lacey Smith said this, quote, Every American should be frightened if an employer can fire them for simply asking a question based on their religious beliefs about culturally important issues. That's cancel culture. And we're living in it right now. By the way, Lacey is currently fighting back in the courts. But that's cancel culture for you. But the agenda is still the same. It always has been. Persecute, vilify, and silence conservatives and Christians so that they will, in fear, retreat. As the psalm says, fly like a bird to the mountain. This is exactly what the culture wants from the church. They want the church to sit down. They want the church to shut up. And they want the church to stay behind stained glass. They want us to live in fear of their political clout, of their media machine, of their corporate power. They want us to be convinced that we are fighting a losing battle. We've already lost. That there's no sense in putting up a fight. But friend, I'm telling you today, we must not give up. We must not give in. Flight is not an option. We are in this predicament today because so many Christians took a back seat on issues. They were silent for way too long. There was too many spineless pulpits who wouldn't preach about these issues. 
and wouldn't give people the truth that they needed to be equipped to deal with the problems at hand. We are in this situation because a previous generation fled from the fray of battle. And I'm not putting down fellow believers or anything like that. I'm just helping you to understand how we got to where we are today. And the things that we did to get here obviously didn't work, so we as a church have to recognize that. This is the fear we must confront. I don't think the culture is going to magically shift over to the right again, and therefore we need to understand we are in the fight of our lives and we cannot flee from it. There is no retreat strategy. In fact, everybody who stood for God in their generation, notice this, Moses did not back down from Pharaoh. David did not run from the fight with Goliath. John the Baptist did not tailor his message to suit Herod. Jesus did not compromise as he stood in Pilate's court. And Paul was not politically correct when he preached to Agrippa, you must turn or burn. Friend, I'm telling you today, there are some hills worth dying on. The gospel, the sanctity of life, your family, your marriage, the bedrock principles that have made Western society what it is for so many generations. These are the things we cannot flee from. Flight is not an option. Christ has called you and me to be salt and light. In the school board meeting, on your job, on social media, at the grocery store, at the voting booth, wherever you are, you cannot retreat from this fight. Listen to what Jesus prayed. John 17, 15, he prayed for the future of the church, you and me. And he said in that passage, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. It's the will of God that you and I dig our heels in and stand for what is true and right and decent and biblical in this chaotic world. We have to stand against the advance of evil. We can't flee. We can't fold. We can't fear. We have been called child of God. You've been called right now for such a time as this to be the generation that may pray your country back from the brink of oblivion. And the cost may be high. They may label you. Yes, you could lose your job in taking that stand. But friend, it's worth it all. And the cost of not doing anything is higher than the cost we may pay from a cancel culture. We must not flee. And then secondly, the fear we must confront, we must not follow. We must not follow. Remember what he says here in verse 2, For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Are you convinced yet, child of God, that the world hates you? The culture at large will never accept this book. They hate Jesus. If he came in 2022, they would still crucify him just as they did 2,000 years ago. You see, one of the temptations that we fall into as we face foundations that are crumbling is, well... Let's just assimilate with the culture. Let's fall into their way of thinking and their way of doing things. That way the culture will like us and that will take some of the pressure off us. And so the mentality is, among so many in the church is, well, if you can't beat them, then just join them. Think of David. 
in this situation as he wrote this psalm, it would have been a lot easier for him just to surrender to Saul and say, Saul, I relinquish my claim that I may have upon the throne. I revoke all my calling, all my anointing. And Saul, I pledge allegiance to you. But how many of you know the calling and election of God is irrevocable? David had been called. He'd been anointed. He'd been chosen. God had His hand on His life. He could not flee and He could not follow. He was God's man for God's time. And yet this is exactly what many Christians and churches are doing under the threat of cancel culture. They are caving in. That's why there's so many pulpits today that are silent on so many issues that you and I know the Bible addresses, but there's too many spineless preachers who won't open the book and talk about sin and talk about judgment and talk about the things of God with some conviction in their life because they're more afraid of being canceled by the people in the pew than by standing for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the hour to stand because we can't flee and we can't follow. So if they're not preaching on subjects as, as sin and what the Bible says about marriage and what the Bible says about what's going on in our culture, they're not preaching the full gospel. And if they are preaching messages, so many churches are going the way of the world. They're telling their congregations to repent of white privilege or why the Bible needs to be updated for this generation. Let me ask you a question, friend. When was the last time you had a preacher that stepped on your toes? Not because he was being mean-spirited or because he was out of the will of God, just because he opened the truth of the Word and the Holy Spirit brought conviction to you. Hey, praise God for that. Praise God for Holy Spirit conviction. They won't back up, put up, or shut up. And we know that another thing that's happened because of the following nature of the Church with the culture is apostasy. The falling away. Apostasy is on the rise. Many defect from the faith. These graduates that we honored here today, statistics say that most of them, when they graduate and go out into the world, they will leave the church and never come back to darken the door of a place like this again. Why? Because they get out in the world and they follow the spirit of the age. You don't believe me. Let me give you some headlines of how the church follows the culture so they won't be canceled. These are just headlines. I don't have time to go into all these. But you read these headlines and you tell me what you think the state of the church is today. Here's one headline. So-called Christian church hosts drag show for 12-year-olds. That was in Naples, Florida at the United Church of Christ holding a youth rally. Quote, unquote. Nashville Church says the Bible isn't the Word of God, says one headline. Well, then what in the world are they doing? Why are they wasting their time if they don't believe this is the inerrant, inspired, infallible Word of God and it tells you how to be saved and how to live right and that there is a judgment coming and that there is a cross and an empty tomb? What are they doing? Just having some religious country club? Have a Rock show and a TED talk and everybody go off happy, lost as they were before they came in the door. How about this headline? Lutherans elect first transgender bishop. That was in San Francisco, no surprise there. I, you can't make this stuff up. 
Mega church pastor joins George Floyd's, George Floyd's family in BLM protest. My, my. How about this? The Vatican calls for cultural revolution to fight climate change of all things. How lost are we? That the Pope is saying the greatest existential threat to people today is the changing of a few degrees of temperature. My God, how lost are we? We've just adopted the playbook of Greta Thunberg in the church. God help us! There's some pastors and some churches that need some serious repentance. And here's, listen, can I get on a soapbox for just a minute? My God help me. Here's the subtle trap that the church always falls into. We do it every few decades when some cultural thing comes around. You always have a group in the church that thinks, well, you know, if we soften the message, and if we look more like the world and think more like the world, then we'll win them over and they'll be our friends. That's the naive thinking of so many church leaders who haven't done enough Bible study to know that Jesus says, in this world, the world will hate you. They hated me first. And if you take my name, you'll be canceled. But when you got the message of the cross and you take away the call of repentance and holiness and then you adopt the spirit of the age, what else do you have to offer the world? I don't have anything except the precious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That your greatest problem isn't likes and tweets. That your greatest problem isn't economic. That your greatest problem isn't uh, climate change or whatever the culture says it is. Your greatest problem is you're broken in sin and utterly lost. And Jesus Christ went to a Roman cross and died for you and me. That's, it hasn't changed. And the need of the human heart is still the same Today, friend, when the church feels it must become like the world to win the world, we have not won the world. The world has won us. Charles Spurgeon said this years ago. He said, quote, The church which the world likes the best is sure to be that which God abhors the most. So, so many of our churches and pastors and leaders today stop trying to be cool. Stop trying to fit in and be a part of the world system. Stop thinking that you will be accepted by the world and stand up on the Word of God and preach it to a lost and dying generation with all that is within you. Holy Spirit anointed, filled and called by the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand. We can't flee and we can't follow. Even though the foundations are destroyed. Because James 4, 4 says this, friendship with the world is enmity with God. I would rather stand with God and be judged by the world than stand with the world and later be judged by God. And we have so many who will not confront that fear. They will flee or they will follow. But David didn't do that. As he looked out on... His world, all the foundations were coming apart. The world was upside down. Wrong was right. Up was down. What seemed to be decent and right a generation ago is now called into question. And so David moved on to hope. In verses 4 through 7, he talked about the faith we must confess. 
the fear we must confront, and the faith we must confess. David spends the first three verses lamenting over his plight. But by the end, his fears are overcome by faith. Why? Because he changes his perspective. It's a great shift that happens when you get to verse 4. Instead of focusing in on the mess of the world and the problems that he could not fix, David turned his gaze upward to heaven. And isn't it interesting that when we understand the greatness of our God, then our problems are put into perspective? And what David teaches us here is that when the foundations of life and society are being shaken, the solution is not running away, but it's running to the throne of God. In fact, David states four facts that bolster his confidence in the midst of chaos. Notice what he says in verse 4. He talks about where God sits. Verse 4, the Lord is in His holy temple. And all God's people said, Amen. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Hey, listen. God has not abrogated His sovereign rule over the universe. Man may rule, but God overrules. History is His story. Kings die. Presidents come and go. But God has no term limits. And Jesus can never be impeached. All of these world rulers are nothing more than dust in the chariot wheels of the sovereignty of God who sits high enthroned above it all. There's never been an emergency council meeting of the Trinity. God's never wiped anxious sweat from His brow and wondered what will we do next. He's still seated high and lifted up. Where God sits. But then also look in verse 4, what God sees. What God sees. His eye sees. And his eyelids test the children of man. God is omniscient. That means all-knowing. He sees his people struggling to hang on to their faith. He sees you struggling with the things being taught to young people. He sees your vexed spirit with what's going on in our world and yet you still put on a, a face and you come to serve God. He sees you still dutifully and lovingly opening your word every single day for prayer and for sustenance. He sees, He knows. But He also sees the wicked and the crooked doing their dirty deeds in the dark. He knows about all the backdoor deals. He knows about the swamp, the corruption, the things that are black as sin and deadly. He knows about the things that our culture won't talk about. The hushed tones that come over when certain topics are brought up because certain people may be involved in that. He knows about the cover-ups. He sees it all. Nobody's really getting away with anything, friend. And if they don't get justice or they don't go to jail or they're not punished here on the earth, I can be okay with that because God sees, God knows, and He's bringing justice one day. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to get involved in all the conspiracy theories and things floating out there about this and that and what could happen. That's fear in another way, friend. My confidence needs to be in God's sovereign rule. Friend, I've said it before. God sees ahead with 2020 clarity, vision into the future. He sees the big picture from beginning to end and everything in between. And aren't you glad that God doesn't have to watch CNN or Fox News to find out what's going to happen next? Where God sits, what God sees. 
I was a history major in high school, or excuse me, in college, and then I later taught a high school history. One of the things that always vexed my soul is you could go to a university and be an American history major, sit in classrooms, and they would teach you everything about revisionist history, about how America wasn't founded on godly principles, about how America wasn't exceptional, and how you should hate your country because of all the woke garbage that we hear about today. But if you want to see an example of God's sovereignty and, and God's sight, just study the founding of this nation. I was reading this week a book about George Washington. Did you know that in 1776, General George Washington's first challenge of the Revolutionary War was to outsmart the British forces when they were occupying the city of Boston? Now listen close. You think God's hand was not on starting this nation? Not only did the British greatly outnumber the U.S. forces, but they boasted more cannons and a top-notch navy. This was David versus Goliath. Meanwhile, the Americans were a ragtag group of farmers and common people. But do you know there were two providential events that turned this early battle in favor of Washington? The first was a blanket of fog that rolled in at night which allowed Washington and his men to take the high ground at a place called Dorchester Heights and the British did not see them. At daybreak, the British commanders looking up at the heights could scarcely believe their eyes when they saw the Americans had taken higher ground. The British General Howe said, quote, These fellows have done in one night than I could make my army do in three months. General Howe then made the decision to attack. He never got the chance. You know why? God intervened. That night of the attack, a terrible storm blew in with hurricane-force winds. British boats were tossed like driftwood. Fierce sleet and snow made it impossible for the British to move their men and their cannons. And the British general had no choice. He could not fight under such conditions. He could not fight against the weather. And so instead, the entire British army evacuated Boston without a shot being fired. And Washington saw the hand of God in all of it. And he put pen to his diary. And here's what he said. This was the most remarkable interposition of divine providence. I have no doubt. In other words, God still sits on His throne. God still calls the shots. And history is a glove in His hand in which He moves the chess pieces on the board and He's ten steps down the road. If it wasn't for that storm, American history could have been very different. But God... Amen? That's Psalm 11. The Lord sits in His holy temple. Where God sits, what God sees, and then notice this, what God sends. Verse 5, The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked. And the one who loves violence, let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of of their cup. You say, that's mighty strong language. Well, friend, that's the Word of God. David wasn't qualifying that. He wasn't apologizing for it. He was calling down judgment. You see, notice the balance of this verse. The Lord sends trials to perfect His saints. They're tested in them. They hone their character. The trials and tribulations we face in this world, they make us more like Christ. Friend, we'll get through this 
this period of inflation and high prices and political uncertainty and wokeness, you and I as children of God will make it through and will be better by God's grace through it all. But what about the wicked? What about those who are in high places creating these agendas, teaching these doctrines, leading many astray, stealing truth and taking us down in the gutter. What about all of those people? Well, look at what the Bible says. Very clearly, his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. You see, what God is going to send is wrath and punishment. Think of all the villains and the despots down through history that God judged according to His righteousness. You can think about Ahab or Nebuchadnezzar or Haman hanged on the very gallows that he built. Pharaoh or Judas. If you stand against God and His righteousness, it usually does not end up going well for that crowd. There is a payday someday. Even now, friend, the raging waters of God's wrath are furiously pounding against the dam of His mercy. And the Bible says that one of these days, the dam of God's mercy is going to give way and there'll be judgment. Oh my, even so, come Lord Jesus. And you say, Pastor, that's so harsh. That's so hard. Well, let me tell you, if your heart loves truth, if your heart loves justice, if your heart loves Christ and all that's moral and decent and right in the universe, when God brings judgment to the unrighteous, your heart will rejoice because you'll say, Go get them, Lord. I've been waiting for you to balance the scales and finally you're redeeming this earth. You're, de- you're conquering evil. You're sending the devil into the lake of fire and you're taking all those who hate you and hate Christ and you're rem- Moving them as chaff blows into the wind. Lastly, what God stands for, verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And the upright shall behold His face. Listen, God's righteousness will prevail. There's a divine thumb pressing down on the scales of justice and it's tilted toward the good and the right. The great reward, the Bible says, is that in eternity we will see His face. And you know what? When you see Jesus Christ face to face and you are known as you are meant to be known, you will say, it was worth it after all. All the battles, all the heartache, all the tears, all the pain, all the valleys, one glimpse of Jesus and all the problems, heartache, the pain will dissolve like a distant memory. Praise God. Christ will rule this earth with justice and peace and righteousness. So when the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? Well, we won't back up. We won't run away from the battle. We won't follow what the culture is doing. But we're going to stand on the throne of God and the revealed Word of God. And by looking into the chaos, David glanced toward God and he was able to refocus his mind and his emotions. I know you're frustrated. I know you're tired. I know you wake up every day and you hear about another shooting or another ridiculous policy or another elected official who just doesn't have a lick of sense. I know you're vexed in your spirit. I'm right there with you. But you know what? 
God is in control. And what I have to do when my emotions get all tangled up and I get angry and I want to post something on Facebook and I'll lose my witness if I do. You know what I have to do? I have to come back to Psalm 11 and say, wait, 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 wait. I know the foundations are destroyed. I know the world is wicked. I know the corruption is deep. But God says, trust me, I've got this. And what you need to do, and what I need to do, is we need to align the boxcars in your train of thought in this order. Faith, facts, feelings, and fears. We say that again. Put your faith first. Not what you can see, but what you can't see, what the Word of God tells you. Put your faith first, then the facts, reality. Put your feelings next, and your fears last. And when you keep them in that order, you will begin to see things as God sees them from the perspective of eternity. And even though the storm rages and the foundations are crumbling, you can stand up and say, yes, it's bad. But I know my God can turn bad into good. Listen to this as I close today. Even though the foundations may be crumbling, the Bible promises that there is one institution that will endure the nations. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said of Himself. He said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, and you come to Him a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, and you like living stones are being built together into a spiritual house. That's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ, the building of Christ. When the foundations of men are built on quicksand, I'm thankful today that the church is built upon the rock of ages. So the foundations are being destroyed. I know it. You know it. But you know what? We're not running away. We're not giving up. But we're digging our heels into what we know to be right and true. And the rest of the world, they can do their thing. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I don't care if they like it. I don't care if I get canceled. It matters not to me if I'm in vogue or in style. If I get hate mail. If I'm not liked. If I'm not shared. The only thing that matters to me at this point, friend, is whether I can hear the divine accolade, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me finish with this. Thousands of people gathered in Pontiac, Michigan on Sunday, December the 3rd, 2017 to witness the demolition of the Detroit Silverdome. The massive 80,000 seat stadium was home to the Detroit Lions NFL team since 1975. Explosives were placed near each of the steel pillars and at precisely 8.30 a.m., the moment the dynamite was Detonated dust and debris shot out from the base of the stadium. But to everyone's surprise, the structure remained standing. The steel beams were damaged, but it still kept the stadium upright. 
The spectators walked away disappointed and engineers who were in charge of the demo were baffled. One remarked, it's going to collapse. We just don't know when. We have to wait for gravity to do its job. And then finally one reporter added this, as the dust settled and the stadium still stood tall, one thing was clear. It was just built too well. And friends, that's the message I want to leave you with. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ founded upon Him is just built too well. This culture may try and cancel it, vilify it, kill it, stomp it, but friend, it's built all too well and the church is still going to be standing if the Lord Jesus tarries. The church will still be here. There'll still be a remnant. There'll still be somebody preaching about a cross and about blood and about an empty tomb and about how God can save from the guttermost to the uttermost. Come what may, men will attack, cultures will cancel, fads will come and go, kings die, presidents will pass through, but God's Word and God's people will endure. The church is just built too well.